there. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Creative Vault. Come join me on an adventure as we unlock and discover the secrets of creative success. Let's get started. My guest today is Zoe Jimaboy, a good friend of mine whom I'm really excited for you to meet. Zoe is a dancer and choreographer from London, and her professional dance training commenced in London at the prestigious Rompuy School of Ballet and Contemporary Dance. She then continued her training at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley, pursuing her Bachelor of Fine Arts in Contemporary Dance Performance. Zoe has trained in classical ballet, contemporary and modern dance, as well as composition and choreography. This summer, she was invited to train with Ballet X and Alonzo King Lines Ballet. In November 2022, which was just last year, she created her first full-length show, Epilogue, which will be touring to LA this summer. Let's meet her. Zoe, thanks for stopping by. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. This is our first time meeting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. Every intro I have is gonna be awkward laughs, period. It has been a consistent thing with every introduction. I'm clearly... Yeah, anyways, nice to have you. Welcome back to Singapore. Thank you so much. Yeah, because you just came back from Boston. Yes, I did. You My... did a full show. I did a full show. That's Crazy. nice. All right. We will dive into that, into her work and her process, but she's a very interesting person. I can't wait for you to get to know her a little bit better. So I would like to start off by asking actually about your family background. So how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> <laughs> so my last name is Jumaboy. Jumaboy. Yeah. So the H is silent. That's why I, I get a lot of Jumbahoy. <laughs> but the but the A is before the B, so it doesn't really make sense. But um, yeah, so I was born in Singapore, so I'm a PR. Um, my mom is Australian, and my dad is British and Indian. Um, but I've lived like I spent most of my childhood in Thailand, and then I went to school in the UK and then the US. So Fair my right. accent is a bit. No one really knows where I am. It's an international accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's very clear and it's really nice. And if you hear her voice from the podcast, it's very soothing. It's very podcast voice-like, unlike mine. Okay, so... <laughs> Alright, so... Um, basically, you are a dancer and choreographer. Mm -hmm. uh, that is the main work of your profession. Yes. 
But if we go back to your beginnings, you didn't actually start off in dance. No. So as long as I can remember, um, I was swimming. So when I was born in Singapore, that was the first thing I did. And then when I was in Thailand, um, we competed all around Asia and Australia. So that was so much of my identity until um, I moved to the UK when I was around 12, 13. And the reason I moved there was to go to a very renowned sports school, go to the Olympics, hear swimmer, whatever. And then by the time I got to like uh, 15, I realized it was just too much. I didn't want to commit to waking up at 5 a.m. every morning to go swim and then come back in the evening. And I think it just, with something like swimming, there's no leeway. Like you either are quick enough or you're not. And there's not, it's not like the arts where maybe someone will love you, someone will hate you. Like you either can make it or you can't. So I kind of hit a plateau and I was just miserable. So I quit. And then um, at my school, you have to do some sort of exercise, fitness activity. So all my friends and I were like, yeah, okay, let's just do hip hop or whatever. And so that was my first introduction to dance at 16. Um, and I ended up doing more and more classes and now I'm here. But it was definitely not a conventional start. Like, I feel like I had a massive identity crisis when I quit swimming because I'm sure like for most people who do dance from age three and then quit when they're in their teens, it's, it's the same thing. Like you have to train every day and then you leave it and it's like, what am I going to do? Um, so I'm really glad that I found something that I can dedicate my time to in the same way. You said that you were competing for the Olympics. So how would your day look like, for example? Yeah, so when we were at school, the, the aim is they were training like, you know, the next group of um, people who they would try to send for trials. Um, so it was literally most mornings like before school, so like 6 a.m. and then coming back in the evening. Um, and it was very different to the atmosphere that I had in Singapore and in Thailand because it was much more community-based. We were younger, so it was still serious, but not to the point of like, we need to go to the Olympics. Um, so when I got to the UK and even within my team, it felt a bit, you know, toxic and competitive I think that's when I realized like maybe I loved swimming because of the people that I did it with mm. and the environment that I was in not so much the sport because when I took all of that away and I feel like I didn't have that um, community I was miserable and mm. it reflected in my performance I I couldn't you know improve as much as I wanted to so mm. yeah was swimming something that you chose when you were younger um yes I think that I like since I was young, my parents would always tell me I just loved being in the water. Mm. Um, and I definitely chose it until I was in the UK and I think my parents could see that I started to be um, not as happy within it. But it took me a good two years to really quit. And I'm, I'm sure that's a struggle anyone who commits their time to anything goes through because it becomes your identity. So. The thought of leaving it is like, well, what else can I do? Definitely. Yeah. During those two years where you were kind of like doing a cha-cha in and out, right? Do I quit? <laughs> do I not quit? Um, what were some of your 
thoughts that you had within those two years? Like, why did it take two years? Um, I think I was just scared, and I I kind of knew at I'm the oldest of all my siblings, and I knew that we had moved to the UK mainly for me. Mm. Um, and the school I was at was completely a sports school, so um, that was the reason I was there, and that we moved, you know, halfway across the world. So I think that um, also I just I didn't really know anything else, and I didn't want to fail. Um, I was always, you know, like really um, affirmed in my ability when I was in Thailand and in Singapore, and I feel like. I was letting the people who believed in me down, and I think that that's normal. Uh, whenever you're trying to pursue something at a professional level, because mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're younger, it isn't always just about you. Like maybe your family moved there, or maybe all your coaches are pushing you to do it. Um, so I think I, it, it took me longer than it should have to walk away, but um, it also got to a point where. I just accepted that maybe this was the fastest I could be. Um, you know, something that's so physical, it's not always for everyone. And I know we'd like to believe that, oh, I can get my leg higher or I can do this or just, but sometimes you just you can't. Yeah. And it's not that you're not trying, it's just that when it comes to your body, um, you know, I was really a lot smaller than everyone else. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just got to a point where I was like, I'm not getting any better. I'm still miserable, so maybe it's time to walk away. Yeah, there's a sense of plateau that happens, right? Whenever like a stagnation. Yeah. Where you're like, okay, but this is this is not working out. But then I think everyone's time to quit looks very different. Some yeah. takes two years, some takes six months, some takes like one day. Yeah. Right. I really admire people that take one day decisions. <laughs> yes. To be like, all right, I'm just gonna do it and quit. <laughs> I admire those people. I have an internal dialogue going back and forth. It's just the whole cha-cha thing, right? Yeah. I do the cha-cha until I'm tired. <laughs> but I, I, I still cha-cha out somehow. Like in my most recent where I resigned from a job, where I was doing the whole cha-cha for six months. And whether I was like thinking, should I do it, should I not do it? But then right. there, there was just something pulling me to like figure something else out. Yeah. So I finally I just put the cord. I was like, okay, sure. Let me just cha-cha my way out of this. Yeah. So I feel like it would have been a, kind of in a similar headspace where there's yeah. this whole back and forth. Okay, and then you moved into dance because that was the... So people chose hip-hop, you chose ballet. Uh, so it, the, the only thing that was offered to people who weren't quote-unquote dancing properly at the school, which wasn't, it was not a school for dance. It was very much like you do a jazz show and everyone claps and that's the only training you get. So we just did hip hop and then I kind of wanted to do, try other things. And that's when I met um, some teachers there who really saw potential. Um, So my kind of training shifted in that the same way as swimming. So I would go in um, at like 6 a.m., do a ballet private, figure out what you know this whole new world is and then come back in the evening and maybe do jazz class or whatever and then do more private training um, because I think once I decided that uh, I wanted to try go for vocational my teachers were like okay well we need to catch you up on 16 years and six months so um, I was willing to put in that time but where I was at in you know 
Somerset in the UK, the middle of the countryside at a sports school. I had no clue, like literally zero idea of what even like the format of ballet class is or what contemporary is and what is contemporary technique. And I just kind of trusted those around me. And then eventually that led me to go to Romba. And I think that's where I was like, oh, okay. Like you do ballet class and you do contemporary and then this is what it means. Mm. But that was when I was 17 already. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah, so we can move on to your time at Rombert. So I'm also a Rombert alumni. I auditioned when I was 16, 16 17, because the school came to Singapore and they held an audition. I was recovering from a toe fracture injury at that time. And I just thought, yeah, let me just take this class as like a workshop. And I only went to the class because I loved the music. I didn't give a shit about the class, whether it's ballet or contemporary. I was like, I love the singing. I love Barry. Shout out to Barry. And um, I was like, yeah, I just let me dance to the music. And Ross, who was the director at that time, was like, you move well. And I'm like, thanks, I'm recovering from a toe fracture. And then suddenly I got offered a place to be at Bombay School. And it's not the, it's, it's a very unconventional path because my parents would have been like, we envision you in university. We envision you to have a stable job. Right. Like, yeah. um, I, I didn't tell my parents that I was going to audition. I just said, oh, I'm going to do a class. <laughs> and then like a week later, I got an offer and they were like, what is this? Right. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, by the way, I told them like after the fact because I knew the reaction I would get, right? Um, but Rombert is a conservatoire training where you start in the morning with a ballet class typically and you would move on to like a contemporary class so it's like hour and a half hour and a half sometimes they put in academic modules like a theory or they might have compositions um studies in the curriculum as well and also pilates and whatnots right but i think one of the main benefits that i got out of conservatoire training at rom there was finding my voice as a creator like the, i really appreciated the platform for choreography mm-hmm. um I know that you did the vocational... Yeah, yes. so I was still 17. So um, the boarding school that I was at, I couldn't go to Rombe full-time because I was in the middle of my A-level. So I did the like, pre-professional vocational mm-hmm. program. Um, and like I said, like it gave me a taste of what um, real training is like. And I really appreciated the focus on technique and I feel like they represent what the industry is really well like the students get the training that is necessary and I think sometimes you know schools um, with a big name it kind of can just get lost if you're not really focusing on what the industry is currently and I feel like Rombert is super current um, and acknowledges that but yeah, I was pursuing my A-level still, so I would go down like on the train two hours every weekend, and it was like Saturday and Sunday um, for like two years, my last two years of school. Um, but yeah, I think it's an, an amazing school, mm-hmm. and everyone who has an experience there or comes out of there is a really unique artist, and like you said, I think it gives you uh, your own creative voice. Yeah where some schools try to just mold you to be yeah. what 
they want you to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's. I I think if we're talking about conservatory life, right? I think something that I've noticed within dance conservatoires. I can't say for music conservatoires or art or visual arts conservatoires, but within dance, there is this expectation that um, it's not a cookie cutter or a sausage factory right. where all of the dancers are the same. I mean. At that time, the training felt like a sausage factory. Right. Yeah. Because it was so linear, it was just one. It felt very one-dimensional. But if we take a bigger picture, we take a step back, right? Actually, it it helped us shape in different ways as artists. We just couldn't 100%. see it yeah. at that time. I think for me, the main thing that I got out of it was uh, finding my voice as a creator. Mm. So coming to your time when you started choreographing. How old were you when you did that? So um, after I did Robert, I went to Boston. Um, so that was my gosh, twenty nineteen. Um, I'm gonna subtract two years because of COVID because shitty COVID. I went there in um, twenty nineteen, and for the first eight months. It was very much just adjusting to the culture shock of being in the U.S. I, it feels like a fever dream. I can't remember my first year because it got cut short very quickly. Um, Why did it get cut short? COVID. I see. So I came back in twenty twenty, and that was my first time living back in Singapore. So I was already nineteen twenty, and I literally knew no one, and I was trying to take class. Like, where do I go? And it it felt like the art scene in Singapore was already so. Uh, tightly knit, and I just did not know anyone. Um, so that was a hard period. But when I went back to Boston for my junior year, um, I decided to take composition. And when I joined the school, I didn't really understand how renowned it was for choreography. Um, but I learned a lot uh, doing composition, and my junior year was the first year where I created my own works. So I created two works that year, and I received a lot of um, validation. And I think people didn't really expect it from me, and that kind of uh, pushed me in my senior year to um, create a full-length show. And I feel like everything I've created. Um, of course, a big part of it is coming from the point of me being really passionate. But I think each work I really set out to um, almost prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. Like my first work was a trio. Then my second one, I was like, I'm gonna do eight people. And then my la- my most recent work is like it's gonna be an hour long, and there's a cast of thirteen people. I think I I wanted to. I felt like I wasn't really being seen at school. So everything I did, I was trying to outdo myself. Interesting. You, there's a sense of challenge that yeah. you have given yourself. Is do you feel a sense of satisfaction? Hundred percent. And I think that um, it's hard because during the process, um, there's no immediate reward, and I don't think you should ever set out to do something artistically for that reason. But I think the position that I was in. Um, I felt very much like um, not noticed or kind of ignored. Mm. Um, so it was this push to show what I can do, um, and it was definitely a, a a challenge within myself. It was never anything 
external, like a teacher being like, you should do this. I, I kind of was just like, I, should, I need to do it for myself and I want to leave a mark. Um, but especially after my most recent show, there's a, a massive sense of satisfaction because I think until the week of the show, I had no idea if it was going to even come together. So. Mm. That that is a relatable struggle. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very relatable thing. Like even a few days before premiere, you're like, I have no you're, idea. Exactly, you're like you're like, is this even gonna happen? Yeah. You keep questioning yourself, right? And you're like, oh, something's gonna happen. Something's yeah. gonna happen. There's always something that happens. Yeah. yeah, I just a curious one. Just to backtrack a little bit to your transition from the athletic world mm-hmm. to the dance world, was there any? tools or mental models or tips that you brought over to the dance that has helped you accelerate your journey? I think the main thing for me is discipline and work ethic. Um, I noticed it more in the US. I think in a university conservatory model, um, they always say that you get the most out of it of like, you only get out of it what you put in. Um, I think it's very different to high school where you're still not 18 and you kind of are allowed to be told exactly what to do. Um, but in a conservatory lifestyle, like you don't show up to ballet, no one's going to message you about it. You just don't. You don't get that class. Um, so I think for swimming, there was never an option to take a day off or never an option to not be at my best. So um, I think that that kind of mentality is what has gotten me to where I am today because the minute I decided, okay, I want a full length show, I want a massive cast, all original music, and I'm gonna do it in two and a half months. Every day I was like, why the hell did I choose this? (laughs) But there was no, there was not a single day I wasn't in the studio. And I think that it would have been way easier for me and I probably would have been way less stressed out to just, you know, tone it down or give up or whatever. But I think swimming definitely taught me like, no matter what, it's 4 a.m. in the morning, you wake up and you show up. Um, and like you were saying earlier to me before we started this, like showing up is the, is the biggest thing that you can do. Because even on the days where I, I didn't want to be in the studio, maybe those are the days where you create something great. Definitely. And I think especially coming out of conservatory life and the moment you start carving out your own journey, however that looks like for you, the act of showing up is even more important. 100%. Because no one is... That's kind of where I'm at now. Like, um, since coming back to Singapore, no one is telling me to go be in class or to, you know, try to create something new or meet new people. Um, The life of an artist, especially if you're going a more freelance route or trying to navigate, you know, creating your own... Thing is lonely and there's no one who's going to tell you to go do class or go try to choreograph um, and I think developing that mental discipline and just making it something that you you owe to yourself mm. like do it for yourself mm. um, that's what's been helping me like I know where I want to be by the end of this year so I need to take the steps every day to achieve that amazing 
we'll talk more about that in a bit. So I would like to move on into your first full-fledged work that was premiered in November of 2022. Yes. It's called Epilogue. Yes. So I had to Google what Epilogue is <laughs> because I, okay, also because I didn't want to get it wrong, but I found it a very interesting title for a first full-fledged work. Right. Because it means that... Yeah, right? Um, what was your thought process in choosing the word epilogue? Um, I remember, I'm sure I can find it, like, because I was 12 hour time difference from my family, and my mom is like, if I do anything, my mom will know, or I need advice, my mom will know. So I was texting her like, I need a name for the show, quickly! <laughs> and I was kind of trying to think of what, um, what, what did the show mean to me? And I think that epilogue, um, I wanted something that meant, you know, the end or the finale. Um, because to me, it's the finale of my time at the school, but also my time as, as a student. Um, and I get it could be it could be so many things. I, I felt like it needed to be the end of, you know, what I was going through or who I thought I was being uh, seen as. Um, I didn't want to be seen as a student anymore. I wanted my work to be appreciated on a professional level. So it felt like the closing chapter for my time at school. So that's why I chose Epilogue. That's a very fitting title. Yeah. I suck at choosing titles. <laughs> so this is also a this is all a personal curiosity yeah. into how people choose their titles. Well, I, my biggest advice is just get a thesaurus. <laughs> That's what I did, like, and I just would spend every night, like, Google, like, the end on, in a thesaurus, and then we'll come up with 20 different words, and you're like, oh, epilogue, that's so smart, and then I'll ask my mom, and she's like, yeah, do it, and then here we are. That's great. Yeah. You, so, so, so you need to do your research, and then get validation. Yeah. Ask your parents, ask somebody that you trust, and be like, look, is this a good title or not? If they say it's f***ing shit, you choose something you choose else. something else. Exactly. And I think epilogue is also a very... It's very interesting because it's this. It signifies the end of something, but also the potential beginning of something else, yes, exactly. which is also like a rebirth for your new whatever comes along your way yes, next. Yes. How full circle. I know. It's great. I love <laughs> it. Did you? Okay. So apart from epilogue, how many other titles were you debating over? Oh my god, so many. Any. I remember going into the studio every day and the first question I would ask is like, guys, anyone got a name yet? And everyone would be like, no, we're exhausted and it's 10.30pm. Like, we have to remember your choreography, not think of a name. <laughs> um, but I think anything, I, I wanted it to sound like a resolution or mm. the end of a chapter. Um, so I was back and forth, I, I'm pretty sure until like four weeks out. Um, yeah, but I think just whatever your gut is telling you, more so what the show means, finding a word or a phrase uh, to define that is what helped me. Like I knew what it meant to me. It meant the end, the finale of my time at school. So I was just trying to find something which would describe that well. Mm. Interesting. Very, you know, it's, it, I, I'm learning a lot from it. I'm learning, I'm learning a lot from it. And it's also in multi, it's also interdisciplinary work as well because you worked with composers and yes. videographers and photographers. Yes. How did you come across these collaborators of your work? So, Wiley, um, my mom is friends with his mom. So, I held an audition the end of, the, of my junior year. So that I would have the whole of summer break to kind of plan. Mm -hmm. 
um, and I remember just being back in Singapore, like I want to, you know, have the entire production be my own. I don't want to use music that someone else has already used. And she was like, well, Melanie's son is a, is a musician and a composer, like we should just ask him. So I emailed him and sent him, you know, like, a, like three different playlists for the three pieces I wanted to create and ideas and videos and just as much information I could give to him. And I just sent it and he emailed me back. And I remember just sitting at my kitchen table with my mom, like, what? did this guy just send me like this is insane like we're working from LA to Singapore via email and he's come up with you know three 20 minute tracks which just completely blew me away and so from that moment I was like okay I think that you know he's the right fit and not just for one show but for you know the rest of my career because it's very very rare to find someone who is willing to work with you in such a inconvenient way like we literally were communicating via email and I'd be like can you change um 0.45 and make it a bit like it, it must have been a nightmare for him but um I think that the thing about him was he he saw what I was trying to achieve um and we both kind of dream big and expect a lot from ourselves um, so he was an incredible to work with and then um, the photographer Phil um, I met through you know mutual friends had posted his work so I reached out to him as well and then one weekend we just had a whole photo shoot and I expected it to just be I needed photos for promotion and that would be it but we really got along and I loved his work. He's incredibly talented. So we kind of just kept going throughout the entire production and he filmed some of it and did more photography. Um, so now I feel like the biggest thing almost that came out of it was my connection to these two people because I always mm, kind of saw it just as like, I need to do my job and maybe there are other people doing theirs, but it doesn't need to be intertwined. Whereas now I think that I see so much strength in the art as a whole because of the music and because of the photos and also because of our relationship to each other. It made it something which was all of ours, not just mine. Definitely. Yeah. I think finding what I call soulmate collaborators right. is yeah. just really rare. Yeah. It's almost like finding a relationship partner. 100%. And I'm so, I'm so, so lucky that you know, my first exposure to something like this, my first picks mm. were that. Mm. And to this day, you know, we're still all in contact. And I think that that's something that I never expected because I can, I can see how, especially artistically, collaborating can be really difficult yes. because it's not, um, it's not always clear cut. It's so much up to personal opinion and preference. Definitely. And, um, yeah, I'm really lucky that we all saw the same vision and they believed in what I was trying to create. Definitely, yeah. I think that sense of community support is very important in helping to empower the yeah. other other works as well, right? Yeah. Because, like you said, there is strength in a collective whole. And I think something that I realized that is needed, especially in the creative world, is just this acts of collaboration and just... You know, hey, let's make shit together and exactly. see what happens. Yes. So, you know, there's a sense of play and then exploration, experimentation. Yes. 
and oftentimes experimentation brings out something beautiful that you never will expect. Yeah. So coming to the topic of your choreography, we're gonna break it down a little bit to the process and the product. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times within a creative journey, there's always the process and then the product, but the end product is never an end product. It's just an iteration of where it is at that point in time. Yeah. So I'm curious to learn a little bit more about where you draw your inspirations from. Hmm. Um, this is interesting because I was thinking about this today because I remember um, all I wanted for the show really like um, was for it to be a triple bill. And I remember because the first um, show I ever saw was um, Romba 2 and they did a triple bill. And I remember just leaving it like, oh my God, like I, I understand the whole power of three. And then I saw um, Paris Opera and Blake Works and everything, and it's the same rule of three. And um, that was my main inspiration. Like I felt so impacted by both these triple bills that I felt like that is the right move for me. Mm. So there wasn't really a point of inspiration other than like very logistically, like I want three works. Um, and as we know, it ended up being a full-length show, so that completely went out the door. <laughs> but um, I think that for me, a big thing is music. Mm. So um, I, I needed to find three musical references that were different, and I was really worried because I was the uh, one choreographing all of it that it would end up being the same three things. So I tried to find music which was really different, and then. You know, if I just listen to the music and close my eyes, what do I feel? What do I see? Like, what are the colors? Um, what kind of words come up for me? And then noting that down and trying to make movement which is appropriate for that. But um, for me, I think uh, the way that I work is once I got the music and got the names of the dancers that are um, performing each work, I can see it quite clearly. Um, as in movement-wise and quality-wise or formation mm. and how people are moving in and out of the space um, and why they're moving in and out of the space, I can see that. And so it becomes more trying to bring that to life mm. rather than find inspiration within it. Mm. And then once I kind of fulfill that, the inspiration behind what I'm creating will naturally come yep. because there's a tone that's being created. Um, but I was thinking today, like, what did, how did I make what I made? And I think that, honestly, I just, I could see it. Um, and maybe that's because I, I planned it well or whatever, but I think the inspiration came once there was a, a rough structure of what I wanted. Yeah. yeah, it's like setting the foundations for something. Yes. And once the foundations are set, there are, uh, ideas can come in and it just comes in different ways and forms, right? Yeah. Are you, so you're a audiovisual thinker in terms of your creations. Yes. Yeah. So you listen more to the music and how it impacts you, but also visually you can almost sort of envision transitions and people in space and the patterns and stuff like yeah. that. Which is very interesting because I also am a audiovisual creator, but I also create through the sense of smell. So sometimes, sometimes when I create something, there will be a certain like flavor that I want to create in my work and okay how can I try and bring that flavor right. out 
into you know the movements, which I know is really weird, but we all have different yeah. magical <laughs> I mean, concoctions. It makes it unique. Like yeah. most people don't know how to work that way. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, some people work with sounds. Some people work with texture. Some people right. just you know can people can sit in the corner and just not move and just visually think and then create a piece. Yeah. Like that's also many many different ways that it can also come up with. Do you have your own go to rituals? Is there a ritual that you do whenever you do a choreography? Okay, I'll get. <laughs> so, oh no! <laughs> oh no! Okay, so um, if I'm sure if you ask anyone in my cast, they can very much easily tell you. So our rehearsal slots were seven to ten p.m. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. So that was the entire cast. Um, sometimes it would be eleven p.m. Sometimes it would be midnight, but. For the general cast, it would be 7 to 10 p.m. I would still be there till at least 1 a.m. with Ben, who was assisting me, and Nigel, who helped me uh, co-choreograph one of the walks. And then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we would still be there, but it would be small groups and whatever. So I never left that building. And every single day, I would walk in with a Diet Coke and a Kit Kat. <laughs> Sugar! <laughs> And, because, sugar. <laughs> and it would just be that by the end of the whole rehearsal process, someone would have a Diet Coke and someone would have a Kit Kat and I'd be like, you know, listening to the music in the corner and a Kit Kat would come over my shoulder. That's nice. I they, don't know they, why. They, they, yeah. they know it. But it was just funny because the, it, by the end of it, everyone was like, get her a Diet Coke and a Kit Kat so she could finish the piece. <laughs> but it just became like a, we're there at 10 p.m. and there's a vending machine and I need something because I need to be here of for course, another yeah. two hours. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But that was my, I think, the funniest ritual. But um, so funny. whenever I would come into the studio, um, I just finished clearing out my notes app and it would be either, you know, where from watching the video of the night before, um, what wasn't I happy with, whether it's um, just basic uh, choreography that I didn't like or formation or movement quality. Um, I would write a specific note down of what I wanted to change. And then if I was generating new material, I would try to come in with some sort of prompt, uh, whether it's for me or for my dancers. Um, So I, had by the end of it a list of like 200 words which I felt brought something different or matched the energy of a certain piece Mm -hmm. um yeah just a lot of planning I think that the reason why it worked the way that it did was because I had to be so organized um by the end of the show there were five there were five different movements or pieces um so Handling all of that on your own is very is a lot. So I think I just planning really came into play and and remembering what each section is, mm-hmm. not just creating in order to fill time. Yeah. I think that was the hardest thing for me. Like, why am I choosing to make movement at this point? What did this words consist of? Like flavors, taste, like anything? Um, I think one of my favorite class that I had at, in Boston um, was by Danny McCusker and it was creative process and that that whole class really showed me a different way of creating and more importantly like how to manipulate work that you already have Mm -hmm. and I used to I remember I mean I'm such a perfectionist like I would never dare to manipulate something that already exists because I I thought it was lazy or I thought it was a cop-out 
So I would always be like, everything I need to make needs to be never, like, it's never been done before and I've never done it before. And then I took this, this class and he was like, yeah, but what if you, everything you do with your arms, you do with your legs? Or what if you face it this way? Or what if you just repeat the same thing over and over again? And what if she's in this part of the room or whatever? And I think that he always used words. Um, so we would create a phrase based off five different words and you'd see eight people in the space and they'd have the same prompt, but it would be so different. Mm. So I think especially days where I was really struggling to generate something new, even I'd be like to my assistant, like just read a word and he'd say something and it would make something very different. And I would always say to my dancers, like, don't give me the first choice. So it's very easy to be like, you know, look left and you look left, but what if you did it with a different part of your body? And that doesn't necessarily make sense but you can make it make sense definitely yeah yeah interesting because because i think the creative like the creative process is ultimately making a series of choices or decisions mm -hmm. that ultimately should be in the betterment of your product and your vision at yeah. the end of the day and i think a lot of the times falling into comfortable habits is also a danger when it comes to creativity yes because some, some somehow I realized that creativity and comfort somehow are like rebellion against each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, but but it, it, it also doesn't mean that you have to be in adversity or to be creative. It's not about that, but it's just having the right amount of danger yes. or right amount of um, challenge yes. for you to be able to push to the next level and be even more creative with your work yeah. process. And yeah. I think that was, I mean, I can see a very clear progression um, of all the work and I remember talking to Nigel um, who was one of my dancers but also co-choreographed with me um, towards the end and I was like oh I feel that like I need to change all of it like I, I don't I don't feel confident in it anymore and he was like it's not that it's bad it's that that's what you made six weeks ago and like you've grown so much through the process and I think that's also important to honor like maybe you'll make a work that's from and it's only shown a year later, it doesn't mean it's bad, it just means that you've developed from then. Yeah. So um, I remember that midway through, one of my mentors came in to watch the show and he asked me to make it continuous and that there needs to be something in the middle of each piece that joins it. And this was like genuinely three weeks out. And I remember just being like, I. How, how does he want me to make, you know, basically like a, a whole new work? Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted the chair and he wanted props. So, but I think that, that made the work 10 times more elevated. And it really pushed me. Like it was very uncomfortable to be in a position where I had three weeks and I needed to make these interlude moments. But when I watch them, I'm like, they are such a standout to me in the work. Um, and that came from a place of danger or, you know, um, discomfort. Yeah. Like, here's a chair, here's two dancers, fill the space. And it's scary, but I think those moments are what makes you um, create things that are the most unique. Because yeah. you're not in a, in a place of comfort. It, there is a push and I think that's where I work best mm. yeah. and me also having a second opinion where someone yes. could, could, could come in and give you a different perspective yeah. yeah yeah and I mean to me I saw I saw it so clearly like clean cut triple bill and when he watched it he's like there's these very clear 
um, solo voices and there's a clear meaning to the chair and why are people wearing blazers and those are things that I hadn't um, noticed because I was so fixated on the aesthetic what does the choreography look like mm -hmm. and he brought meaning definitely to the piece um, and when I implemented that like why why is he doing this or she doing that and why is there a chair the whole work kind of tied together when I never really intended it to Mm -hmm. Yeah. How what what would you say throughout this learning was your biggest takeaway? Um, I think for me it, it showed me um, most importantly that if I set my mind to it, I can do it. Um, I think it also showed me how. Um, toxic the industry can be and <laughs> you know there's it's very hard to find people who will stick with you and find people who will um, be loyal and believe in what you're creating but when you do those are the ones and sometimes you need to be in a position of you know um, in within a situation that's not very comfortable or a bit toxic or mean to find the beauty in that you know the people that uh, stuck by me and really believed in me and uh, brought me a Kit Kat when I was crying in the studio like those are the ones who I will reach out to uh, in future endeavors and that I know trust my vision and believe that I will go through with it but I think that you know creating anything um, that's your own work like I had so much pride in it but it also meant that because it was all me, mm -hmm. that all of the light was on me. Yep. So when there was, um, you know, hate or mean comments or whatever, it's, I have to take all of it. It's not, you know, directed to a group of uh, company dancers and whatever. It's mm -hmm. very easy to ignore. Whereas I think that um, that was a hard thing to deal with. Like this was all my name. Yep. Um, but on the flip side, it's like, exactly, it's all my name. And so if I achieved it, like, it is because of me. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think also prior to this um, chat, we were talking previously, where certain points in your journey has been very challenging for you. How do you keep that spark alive or what drives you to keep going? Um, if any. <laughs> I think... Um, Finding balance has really helped me and my best friend um, went to the same school and she would always tell me that because I would just, I would be like, I need to get it done right now and like, I keep thinking about it so we need to go to the studio and she's like, Zoe, it's 1am and it's a Wednesday, like just leave it, let's like go have a drink or go to the park or whatever and then come back tomorrow and do it and I think it comes from swimming, like this idea of not being able to stop but every time I have kind of, you know, taken a step back or found other points of inspiration, it's made me re-inspired. I'm also really inspired by the people I work with. I think that um, the work is what it is because of the, of the dancers. Yeah. And they, I was so lucky to have the cast that I did. And um, every day, you know, they would inspire me. And I think that it's credit to them. Like, it's very easy to be a performer and see it very much as a, you know, this is what I'm required to do and I will 
enter at seven and leave at 10 and that is it. And that's, you know, doing your job. But those who went above and beyond for me um, completely built the vision that I, that I wanted. And that is such a strength. And I think that, um, I mean, I would always tell them, but it's very admirable these days to have a work ethic or passion like that because a lot of people just see it as, you know, almost a contract. Like I'm doing my job and that's it. But those who really love it, like I could, I could see it and I really appreciated that and it helped build it to a different level. Definitely. What would you say your pillars of core values are when it comes to yourself as a choreographer? Like, yeah. I think authenticity is a big one. Um, I felt a lot at school that, um, I mean, the contemporary dance world goes very much in and out of trends. I think especially with how much social media has increased with that whole concert dance world. You know, you see kind of very similar images on stage of these top companies and it becomes this like task to just emulate rather than to be creative. And I think there's a difference between taking inspiration from those works versus trying to copy. And so at school, sometimes I felt like we were all just copying what NDT last did when we're not NDT and we are not in the shoes of the artistic director and we don't have those movers. So um, I think it's important to take inspiration, but why am I creating what I'm trying to create? And um, every time I kind of lost that or I felt like I was trying to fit a mold with what the movement was, I would just go back to that, that I want it to be um, identified as Zoe's work, Mm -hmm. not something that, yeah, looks good, but it's just like everything else that we're seeing. Yeah, definitely. And I think also your choreographies have such a unique idiosynchronicity to yourself that's also very true to who you are. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that voice is very clearly translated through your works right. from what I have seen so far and I really admire that thank you yeah, yeah it's not it, it takes a lot of courage to stay true to your voice yeah. especially when there are so many other different voices that are trying to take on top of one another yeah I find that I, I find that there is deep courage in holding on to what you believe yeah. is best and I think that's that's what makes work so impactful um, sometimes, you know, my biggest, um, I feel like pet peeve almost is when art becomes something that is completely for an aesthetic. And I think there's a time and a place, but, um, truly the reason why I know I do this is to make people feel something. Yeah. And so if I'm disingenuous in, in what I'm saying, I feel, um, or think, then that's completely going against that. Like I needed in this process, which was super emotional for me, to share that with my dancers. Like this is what I'm going through and I want you guys to open up to me if you feel comfortable. And a lot of them did and it made this like body of work so much more meaningful. And even if people in the audience hadn't gone through the exact same thing, they feel it yep. and they can relate it to their own lives. I don't think it should ever be a storyline that's spoon-fed like I don't want to have the meaning written up or or have it so um, like obviously gestured 
but I think that the beauty of, of creating is being able to portray this feeling and everyone in the audience can take it in their own way. Yep. Like it doesn't need to be my story, but it needs to be something, this sense of openness that I'm like, yeah, this is how I'm feeling and I'm going to show it through my work or this is what I'm thinking at the moment that I'm going to show it through my work. And, and that's a strength. I think some people don't want to be, you know, vulnerable and, and that I understand that that's really hard, but art should be something that we can kind of discover vulnerability with as well. Nice. Man, that's so wholesome. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. I just find this. I, 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 I'm, I'm like nodding I mean, my I'm head. Gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be real. Like there, there, there's, it's very easy for me to to view it at in this light with some distance. Mm-hmm. But um, all of us, like my cast and and I and my uh, composer, like during while while you're in it it's very different it's very easy for me now to be like oh my god it was so beautiful and and i felt like this and i shared my heart and i'm like but no like i was there and my posters were getting torn down and i was like you know in the studio till 1am it wasn't completely pleasant but every so often i needed to remind myself why yeah and that's not to say that it's all really beautiful and emotional and and you know like a dream come true but holding on to the why is kind of what got me through it. Yeah. The power of why. Yes. That's so important. Yeah. I think the power of why, especially if we just keep going with our emotions, right? It is the power of why starts to get lost. Yeah. And I think also part of the creative process is to lose a little bit of that why mm-hmm. and then come back to come back it. to it. And it will always shift. And yes. I think it's also important to have you know, I was very lucky that a lot of my dancers were close friends to me. So they also have a different out, outlook. They see me as me, but they also see me as a creator. Um, but they could always remind me why. Yeah. Whether it's a text message like, you know, we got this, keep going, and remember why you're doing it. And I think that's also important. Like I said before, you know, being an artist sometimes can be lonely, but as much as you can, it's, it's really important to have a circle that can keep you sane because it is, it is, you know, treacherous if you're out there on your own. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Dangerous waters. Yeah. A hundred percent. Especially something artistic. Like you have to believe in what you're creating, Mm -hmm. but it's not, you know, like swimming, it's, you're either fast enough or you're not. Whereas something like this, it's someone could love it. Someone could really hate it. Um, so having faith in, in what you're doing is really important. You need people around you to support you in that. Definitely, yeah. Mm. I think one last question, I think, to just wrap up this conversation, because I think it's on a really good energy level right now. So just one last question to, um, what's one thing you want that you hope to change people's mindset about with regards to choreography? I think that um, we were kind of discussing this earlier, like my struggle kind of now is finding a platform in which I can create the type of work I want to create. And I think that um, sometimes the idea of being a choreographer or a director comes with a certain level of um, requirement. And for me, I think that uh, anyone who 
is willing to put in the work and deliver a vision which they believe in or is new or um, I want it to be that that can be equally as appreciated as someone who's been creating for however many years. I think that especially now um, everything is so much more accessible and there's a push for things that are new. I hope that people can see the value in upcoming and emerging and young um, because sometimes you know it I mean post-grad is, is fucking hard <laughs> but I think yeah you know, and I understand it but I I want it to be that the arts industry becomes more um, you know excited about this whole uh, new wave of creators I think the new wave of performers is always going to be a thing like we always want young bodies and whatever but I think that um, trusting that the same people can bring new ideas um, is something that I want to you know almost be the face of like mm -hmm. I want to show that um, you know maybe I did just graduate or whatever but what I can deliver is just as valuable great thanks so much <laughs> No, I just, I just feel very inspired by what you have shared, and mm -hmm. thank you very much for sharing. Of so, so wholeheartedly as well. Um, yeah. Any parting notes or thoughts? Um, if you need to make a full length work, I would suggest a diet coke. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, I think. Uh, being an artist is, is not as glamorous as it always seems and um, I'm really grateful that through this process and through being back in Singapore I can I've found you know a circle of people who I can be so open with um, and if I'm able to communicate with you like that personally like um, I want to be able to share it with whoever's listening right now I think there's no point me sitting here and being like, yeah, oh my God, it's been so great and I made a great show and whatever. Like, no, there's no point. So nice. Yeah. Thanks for keeping it real. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for keeping it real. Hey, just before we leave on this episode, if you ever feel so compelled to do so, feel free to give the Creative Vaults Instagram page a follow. The link is in the show notes below. Till then, see you in the next one.